Well, thanks everyone. Uh, as you know, our, our guest tonight is Dr. Megan Best. Um, now, Megan might uh, correct me if any of this is incorrect, but um, could everyone please, before I explain uh, the things of Megan's life, can you please welcome her for coming to our church? Yeah? Now, Megan, from my understanding that you're a, you're a palliative care doctor, um, as well as uh, someone who uh, is somewhat an expert in bioethics. Uh, how, did, how did that come about? Um, I originally trained as a palliative care doctor. I look after people who are terminally ill, and um, I actually work with people who want to stay at home for as long as possible at Greenwich Hospital. Okay. Um, and then uh, after um, I'd been working for a little while and we had a family, it was hard to keep up the clinical work because those sorts of people are sick all the time, not just in business hours. So I yeah. <laughs> um, did extra training in bioethics and I've been representing the Anglican Archbishop in state and, and federal government in bioethical issues since the mid-90s in the social issues executive. Yeah, mm. that's fantastic. Like, I'll ask you about that a little bit later on because when I spoke to you the other day, I was talking to you and then you said, I, have, I actually have to wrap up this conversation because I'm heading off to Parliament to talk. And I sort of thought that that was probably a little bit more important than talking to me at the time. And, and so I was happy for you to do that and I'm interested to know what that's like. Um, but I also know that you're really passionate about this, era, this area. It's obvious, uh, Megan has just uh, published this excellent book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, which deals with the ethics of the beginning, surrounding the beginning of human life. Um, it's an enormously comprehensive book. Uh, Megan, you'll be pleased to know that I've read the entire thing. Oh, well done. And no, 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 no. And I had to ask some of my doctor friends uh, about some of the things that are, that are in here, but I'm really glad that you've written this book. Tell me, what made you write it? Well, I think because I'm a doctor and I'm a Christian and an ethicist, uh, you don't get that combination very often. And I found a lot of people no. were starting to ask me about ethical issues they came across in their own life. Um, you know, which contraceptives should I use? Um, uh, people going to IVF, getting into all sorts of ethical problems about frozen eggs and uh, frozen embryos and what should I do with them? And um, uh, people um, just... Uh, finding that with advances in modern technology, new ethical problems were arising which we hadn't come across. And there was obviously a big issue between human desires to have healthy children, to have a family, and promises being offered by medical technology, and this almost unbearable tension of sort of what's between what's possible and what's right for Christians. And I felt that there was a need for some sort of a handbook so that Christians could have factual information to uh, base their decision-making on, but also have a framework to think about it in a Christian way. Because um, even if you have a Christian doctor, it, they may not have had the opportunity to think through some of these issues because the technology is so new. So the idea was to get something in the hands of the Christian public yep. uh, that would enable them to deal with those issues. Now, have you found that all the questions have stopped now that you've written this book? No, in fact, I'm, I'm answering more questions than ever right at the moment, but I'm hoping that won't continue. But it's obvious that there's no way we can cover all the ethical issues to do with the beginning and end of life in one session. So 
uh, through the evening, I may be suggesting that you read the book yourself, or at least part of it, to, to really find out the details. For example, the contraception chapter took me a year to write because it was so hard to find the information about how all the contraceptives work. A lot of the manufacturers don't want us to know how some of them work. So I had to go back to original scientific papers to see what research had been done. So it's very hard to get hold of this information. And um, if you really want to understand how some things happen, you just have to read the fine print, I'm afraid. But I'm happy to guide you in the right direction tonight. Now, you've, you've titled your book Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. Um, now, that, that suggests that, that humanity is made. Um, is, that the, is that what forms the basic basis of your ethic, would you say? I think that when we're talking about ethical issues at the beginning of the life, the, the main issue we have to grapple with is the moral significance of the unborn human. And in the Bible, we're told that we're made in the image of God. And that has huge ramifications for how we should be treated. Um, it's not because of anything we do or anything that, um, about us that makes us um, worthy of respect. It's we, we have dignity because of the God in whose image we are made. And it's not the way we treat the unborn child that gives it dignity. It's because it has dignity that we need to treat the unborn child with respect. And I take the, the title from Psalm 139, which is a, uh, a wonderful passage where King David describes how he was woven together in his mother's womb. Yeah. So yes, it, it's a very foundational part of the way I, I'm thinking about this topic. Now, you, you talk about in your book the concept of ontological continuity. Now, for those of us who are lay people and not quite sure what that means, uh, can you please explain to us what does that mean and how... How's that in, how does that inform how we think about these things? Well, this is where we're going to show you some pictures because sometimes pictures speak louder than words, yep. particularly when they're such long ones. Yeah. So, do I just go? It's yeah, yeah, if you just okay. click, it should go. So, what I'm going to do now is because um, with, in bioethics, you've got a lot of information you need to get on board to be able to even start thinking about them. So, we need to know the facts. Um, about what's going on before we can start thinking through an ethical position because often Christians have opened themselves up to criticism quite rightly because we start having an opinion on things and we don't really know what's going on. So I think it's important in medical ethics we know what's going on. So uh, in order to make sure we're all on the same page about the biology of unborn humans, what I'm going to give you now is a quick biology lesson about how the baby develops. So I just think, is that? Yeah, keep going. Keep going? Okay. Yeah. So this is um, a cross-section of the female reproductive system. And this is the way most of us are conceived, where the sperm and the egg meet in the fallopian tube, which, and then an embryo is formed which travels down um, to the uterus through the fallopian tube. And human conception begins with fertilization of an egg by a sperm, and this creates a single cell called a zygote. Uh, this is a highly a magnified view of a sperm burrowing through the wall of an egg. And from this point, development is a continuum through pregnancy, 
childhood to adulthood, and all the genetic material or DNA required for full maturity of the human being is present. So I would say in this single cell we have a member of the species Homo sapiens. The first cell division occurs within 24 hours of conception and cellular division continues while the embryo travels down the fallopian tube towards the uterus. On day five to six, uh, you have a blastocyst, which is like a hollow ball with a clump of cells on the inside, and that's where the embryonic stem cells come from. You know there's going to be a test on this afterwards, don't you? <laughs> At the end of the first week, implantation begins, where the embryo attaches to the uterine wall and the mother's blood starts to nourish it. Sadly, this doesn't always occur successfully. And at around 14 days, the mother will notice that she's missed her menstrual period, which is the first outward sign of pregnancy. In week three, you have the future spinal cord beginning to develop and heart fuse, uh, tubes begin to fuse and the blood cell of, of the embryo starts to be produced. And in week four, the embryo measures three millimetres in length. The, head, the heart of the embryo starts to beat in a regular rhythm and development of the spine, thyroid, eyes, ears, arms and legs beginning. You once looked like this. And it's exactly the way you should have looked at this stage of your development. In week five, the embryo measures eight millimetres. We have continued development of eyes, mouth, arms, legs and brain. Nose, sinuses, lungs and hands begin to grow. In week six, the embryo measures six millimetres in length. We have beginning of formation of the feet, ears, nipples and bones, continued development of face and brain. Arms and legs have lengthened with foot and hand areas distinguishable. In week seven, the embryo measures 2.2 centimetres in length. The trunk lengthens and straightens. The upper limbs now are bent at the elbow. Kidneys and taste buds start to develop. The embryo is beginning to produce its own hormones, and if you look at it on ultrasound, the limbs move spontaneously. In week eight, the embryo measures 1.9 centimetres in length. The limbs are longer and more developed, and the facial features continue to develop, with eyelids and ears taking shape. At this stage, we have the beginnings of all essential internal and external structures present. So you can see that even while we're still at the embryo stage, an enormous amount of development has already taken place. Now at eight weeks, we stop calling it an embryo and start calling it a fetus. And at three months, the fetus reaches a length of just over eight centimetres. The intestines have moved into the abdomen, fingernails are starting to develop, the fetus begins to swallow the amniotic fluid. External genitalia are distinguishable as male and female. Neck and taste buds are well developed. Kidneys start to make urine and fetal chest movements are starting. Uh, at four months, the head is erect. The lower limbs are well developed. The ears stand out from the head. Uh, abortion is still legal for a normal child in Australia at this point. Babies as early as 22 weeks can survive with our current technology, though it's uh, more normal for them to have a chance at surviving it if they're born at 23 or 24 weeks. Um, at five meets, the toenails start to develop and head and body hair are visible. Things start to get a, um, a bit squashy as we go on, and then a baby is born at term if all goes normally. Now, I don't think that many people would disagree that this uh, newborn baby is a human being who deserves to be protected. 
So my question is, well, when did it stop being a human being so that that no longer applies? And in view of the fact that in the very first cell, the zygote, all the uh, genetic material that was required for the fully mature uh, organism was present and that it directed its own development from that time onwards, I would su suggest that biologically, when the sperm and egg were joined, that's when human life began. And that's the view of embryologists around the world, the experts in this uh, area of science. Now, ontological continuity is just a very long name that means the individual who started off as a human zygote when the sperm and egg of their parents joined together is the same individual who is born and is the same individual as an adult, that it's one continual um, progressive life and that um, the person that I am is the same person as the one uh, that my, my mother gave birth to. Now, I look quite different from what I look to at that stage, and I look, also look quite different from how I looked at embryonic stage. But as I said, I looked appropriate for a human being at those particular points of my development, but I am the same individual throughout. In, in lots of these debates, people would say, um, yes, but... Well, pro-choice advocates might say, but yes, but the right of a woman... Um, over her own body still trumps the right of the unborn to live. And uh, so what, what might you say to that? And also, how does this debate about the personhood of the, the fetus come into that? Now, you've covered personhood already. Yeah, um, I have, yeah. Well, really an informed debate. We no longer have to go through all the arguments about whether we're dealing with a human being. Everyone in informed debate now agrees, yes, it is a human being, but when does it deserve to be protected? And while people from a, a pro-life perspective would say, well, it deserves protection right from the start, uh, people on a pro-choice um, position would say, well, it only deserves uh, protection when it's a human person. And there have been um, arguments introduced in the last century over when human personhood um, starts and, and divorced it from its original meaning was that if you're a human being, you had a human nature, which meant you were a human person. That, was start, that people started to challenge that and say, well, you might have the potential for a human nature, but it's only when you can actually express your human nature that it counts. So we're saying that in the early stages of development, a human being doesn't necessarily deserve to be protected. And this idea that a woman has a right over her own body, um, uh, the way I would, well, that's really how the abortion issue uh, has been justified. And I'd just like to say at this stage that one in three Australian women will have an abortion in their lifetime. And so I expect in a crowd this size that someone has had either an, an, a personal experience with abortion or that someone close to them has had an abortion. And I just want to say that nothing I say is intended to be judgmental. I think it's wonderful that you're here and that all information I give you tonight is to help us to make better choices in the future because we have a God who forgives us when we are repentant of the things we've done wrong in the past. And I know personally how hard it is to get information about a lot of these things. But, but the idea that um, a developing child is part of the woman's body is quite wrong in scientific terms. Um, the, the, the baby has a diff different genetic makeup. 
it may be of a different gender, it may be of a different blood type, it is, uh, it is developing within the mother's body because that is where uh, the environment required for developing humans. None of us would last long if we weren't in an environment that was conducive to our survival. Uh, we need oxygen. If someone decided that um, they wanted to put us somewhere where there was no oxygen, we'd be in big strife. If, if a very young developing human's taken out of the mother's womb, it's in trouble. So um, I would say that, for one thing, it isn't their body uh, in that sense. But I think it's in our community that we, um, we do expect parents to do things for their own children that they might not do for anybody else. And we do have expectations all through life that parents have special responsibility to their children. And just because a child is conceived unexpectedly doesn't mean that that the mother and the father aren't parents. And I think that we've gotten ourselves into this mindset that we can have sex without having children because contraceptives exist. But in fact, there is no completely 100% reliable contraceptive. And I think that our society needs to think about the fact that if you're sexually active, well, you may become a parent through that. And it's not when the baby's born that you become a parent or when you decide you want the child you become a parent. If you're pregnant, you're a parent. And we do expect in our society for parents to put themselves out for their children. Um, but, as I said with the personhood debates, um, I often find people don't agree with me, but that's the position I hold. Okay. Can I pinch the slide thing back? Um, often, I, I, I've been saying the last couple of weeks that we've sort of got a own this as a, as a community. And uh, someone put a, a quite an excellent question back to me on, on this. Uh, two, two sort of related questions. Uh, one of them was this. Um, do you think we're a community at Church in the Bank that would realistically support a teenage girl through pregnancy? How do you know this? And how does it become something that's not shameful? Is that shameful for us or shameful for the girl? Sh I'm not sure what the question meant. Yeah, so either, perhaps. And then the second question related is, what's the best way we can care for someone who has aborted a child? Um, these are questions that people have had. Um, uh, Megan, what would you say to that? You can't speak for our community. I know you don't no. know us as a church. I, I think... Women in these situations um, are struggling they need to be loved by the community, but in the end it comes down to individual relationships. And I don't think, a com I, I think if we start thinking, well, this is something a community does, it's very easy to sidestep and let some think someone else is doing it. I think we have to start talking in terms of what can I do. Uh, in terms of a girl who is expecting a child who is single and comes to church, I think you should praise this girl for her bravery. In America, more than 50% of girls who have abortions write down that they are Christian. How many girls feel that it is better for them to have an abortion so nobody knows they were sexually active than to front up a church and publicly say, I have sinned and um, now you all know it and, and wait to be judged. I think that the church may have a lot to answer for. So I, I think we have to be very careful 
to see a girl like that as somebody who has been very brave to protect her own child and she deserves um, to be welcomed as somebody who is publicly admitting to sin that a lot of us would do go to some lengths to hide because um, being pregnant is, is a very obvious sign of the fact you've been sexually active. Boys escape that entirely. Um, so we need to... Of course she's, she's ashamed, um, as we all should be ashamed when we have lived in a way that's not honouring to our God. But this is someone who... Um, could well have been thrown out of home because she wouldn't have an abortion. She may have been rejected by her boyfriend because she wouldn't have an abortion. Uh, she could well need somewhere to live. She probably um, will need uh, some support late in the pregnancy, even if she doesn't now, because a single mother's pension doesn't kick in till after the child is born. And where does she live? How does she feed herself late in that pregnancy? And there is a, a group in Surrey Hills called Pregnant Alternatives, which uh, is a Christian counselling clinic uh, near one of the biggest abortion clinics in Sydney. And one of the things they are offering to some of these girls who really don't want to have an abortion, but feel they have no choice, which is really the reality for a lot of the people having abortions in Sydney, um, that there are Christian homes being opened up um, as places where they can live or, or rooms that they can rent uh, while they wait for the birth of their child. Uh, so this is something that we can all do. We have to help in very practical ways. We might need to support her as she retrains so she can support herself and her child after the birth. Um, it may be that she'll need cots and, and high chairs and baby clothes. Um, but these um, are women who I think deserve to be uh, given a lot of support by the church community. Uh, in terms of someone who's had an abortion, if you look at the reasons why we, we our women have um, abortions, it's, it's very rarely because um, they're, they're pro-choice and they think they have a right over their body. A lot of women having abortions are personally morally opposed to abortion at the time they have that abortion, but feel they have no choice. Uh, it could be because, as I said, they've been thrown out of home, they don't th know how to uh, look after a baby, they, they don't know how to have a healthy pregnancy, they might not have a relationship with their mother where they can get advice about sort of where do you even go to, to get care for your child. There's a high uh, association between domestic violence and abortion. I think that we have to realise that abortion is a, it's not a black and white issue. And it's very easy in Australia, if you have an unplanned pregnancy, to have an abortion. We need to be given more choices. The choice to keep your child often doesn't seem apparent to these women. And I think that that is a role of the church, is to see uh, it, how we can make it easier for women to keep the child when no one in their immediate circle is supporting them. I've even heard Christian girls come up to me and say, I had an abortion because my Christian parents forced me because they didn't want the embarrassment of a pregnant, unmarried daughter at church. So we need to find ways of um, having conversation with our daughters so that they know they can come to us if, if they get pregnant um, before they're married. And I think that someone who is grieving from an abortion can have all sorts of psychological problems. 
There's a website called Real Choices. I think you need to get expert advice if somebody's really struggling, but um, certainly loving them and not judging them and telling them about the, the loving God who forgives the repentant is, is a big part of what that person needs. Hmm. Now, even having said that, lots of people, and I know lots of the questions around this, have um, still asked, is there any circumstances of which you would consider abortion yes, to be there are a lot of questions about morally that. justifiable? Is, mm. is there exceptions to these things? Uh, one of the questions was, um, was this. It said, um, what if a baby is threatening the mother's health? Mm -hmm. uh, how does a couple decide uh, what to do re-abortion? And I know there's others there. So the, the three exceptions everyone wants to know about, so we might as well just cover them now, is um, health of the mother, what about rape, and what about genetic or some sort of abnormality in the fetus? Mm. Uh, the first one, I, I do think there are cases in which abortion is justified, and that is when it, the mother... Um, would die if the baby wasn't delivered immediately when the baby isn't viable. That is, the baby can't survive outside the womb. So, as I said, the very earliest a baby would survive with the current technology is 22 weeks, but a lot of them it would be more like 26, 28 weeks before you can reliably expect a child uh, to have a, a good prognosis. So you've got a situation where a mother... say early pregnancy, like a tubal pregnancy or an ectopic pregnancy. Um, the baby's an embryo of about one week, two weeks um, maturity. There's no way that baby's going to survive outside the womb. There's also no way that baby can develop normally if it's not in, in the uterus. And if that pregnancy is allowed to stay in place, as sadly it is in some countries of the world, the mother will probably bleed to death, which means two people will die. The baby's going to die for whatever happens. But we might be able to save the mother's life if we terminate that pregnancy. So I would say that where you have a choice between losing two lives or losing one life, it is better to lose one life. And so sadly, you would have to terminate that pregnancy and save the mother's life. And I think that that is uh, in accordance with biblical ethics. It does get a bit more complicated, say if the woman's 20 weeks. Um, the cases I've come across personally is if a woman finds out she has cancer. Uh, it may be she could develop a problem of very high blood pressure or be found to have a heart defect, the mother's heart. In which case, you need to go to an expert in fetal mater um, maternal fetal medicine, which is an expert in looking after complicated pregnancies. Because sometimes when a less experienced doctor's looking after the pregnancy, they might say you have to have an abortion. A more experienced doctor might be able to say, well, we can give you the type of chemotherapy that's not going to harm the child. Or we can keep this pregnancy going until the point where the child can be delivered and have a choice of life. And obviously, if you could keep the pregnancy going without threatening the mother's life, that's the preferable thing, so both of them are okay. But if for some reason, and the most common one is um, the high blood pressure might produce an emergency situation where if the baby's not delivered or, or the pregnancy's not terminated immediately, the mother will die. It is better to save one life than no lives. And in those cases, very sadly, you, I, I would say it's ethically justified to terminate that pregnancy. Uh, 
we have to remember that a lot of the pregnant, um, the termination of pregnancies in our society at the moment are justified under threat to the mother's health. But if you look at the fine details, it's usually her mental health. And that is really the, just the, the category that abortion on demand is put into. While it's not technically abortion on, on demand, essentially in Australia, if you really want uh, an abortion, you can get one, and usually with a Medicare rebate. And, and that's to the mother's mental health. I'm talking about saving lives, whether she lives or dies, not whether she will feel better about things if she's not pregnant anymore. Um, so that's quite um, a clear-cut category in, in some ways, but it can be very hard to know when a baby is viable, and that will depend a lot on the doctors involved being able to, to look at every particular case. In the case of rape, this is a situation which is should never happen, but it's a, a period of great distress for the woman involved. And she needs to have expert care, which we really don't have time to get into tonight. But just because the baby is conceived as a result of rape doesn't change the moral status of that baby. And I would suggest that rape doesn't change the fact that that is a human being made in the image of God. And we don't have much information about termination after um, pregnancy due to rape. But what statistics we do have suggest that women who carry the pregnancy through do better than the ones who have an abortion. Because a rape is um, an act of violence against a woman. And many women will feel that the abortion is just a second act of violence. Um, there can be healing in carrying the pregnancy to term. There's a wonderful book called Startling Beauty by Heather Gemmon that talks about a woman who actually was raped, found herself pregnant and had to grapple with the situation, which is a, a very helpful way of understanding what goes on. But we, I think that um, abortion can seem like an easy answer, but for a lot of women it's just found it makes things worse. So I think you have to uh, be very careful in those situations. I don't think it's justified biblically to have an, ab an abortion. It may be the mother may not be able to raise that child. If she does get flashbacks to the rape every time she see the, sees the child, it may be that she'll need to put the child up for adoption. Um, and uh, that, that is an ethical choice because she saved the life of that child. Uh, but we don't want her to go through more trauma and obviously she'll need an enormous amount of support, whatever happens. Now the case of genetic abnormality, really the reproduction business these days has, has developed to a point where only normal babies are, um, are encouraged uh, to come to term. We, we now have routine screening tests for unborn babies looking not just for things that will help the pregnancy be healthy, but to find out whether the baby's normal. However, we can screen for more abnormalities than we have cures for. So a lot of the things we screen for we, are just illnesses we have no treatment for. So we've developed this practice where every pregnancy is screened with the understanding that if you find an abnormality, you'll have an abortion. 
This is not actually explained to women around the time they're having the test. Often the first thing they find out about is, is that there's something wrong. And uh, there are lots of reasons for that. And I, I talk, I have a, a whole chapter in the book about normal pregnancies and, and what, th what things are done to help the pregnancy mm. be healthy and, and what things are done looking for abnormalities. And, um, and so you do have this question of um, what, when is something bad enough um, to justify an abortion? Some things, I must say, uh, that are now uh, seen as a reason for abortion can be easily treated. For example, club foot. I have a friend who's a paediatrician who hasn't seen a case of club foot in about 20 years, and, and that doesn't even need surgery for correction in many cases. Um, I think we've got two categories. We've got abnormalities, which um, will mean the baby has a lifelong disability, mm. and um, those which will mean the baby will die soon after birth. If we're all made in the image of God, I don't think a genetic abnormality changes that. And so I don't think that genetic determinism or, or um, uh, what's the word for prejudice? Um, hmm. Discrimination, sorry. Discrimination against uh, a, a child with a, a genetic disability, I think, is wrong. And, and anyway, more people get disabled after birth than before, so the chances of having a child who's made disabled after they're born is actually greater than before birth. So if we're thinking we're going to have a, a, a world without disabilities, we're just kidding ourselves. I think the, pregnancy, the, the pregnancies where it's been found that a child is going to die soon after birth before um, there's been an abnormality found... Um, is obviously very distressing to parents who, who want a normal child. We all hope for normal, healthy children, and that's normal, and there is nothing wrong with that. But if, because we live in a fallen world, we have a child with some sort of a problem that's going to cause the death of that child, I th the, the parents who do best, in my experience, are the ones who do what they can for the child in the time that's given to them. And every day of our life is written down before one of them come to be, we're told in the Bible. And so God knows how many days that child has. And the parents who know they've done everything they can for their child while their child was with them, um, I've found have, even though it's been a very sad pregnancy, have done well. But these families need a lot of support. They, they might need the vocabulary. I mean, how do you... What do you say to those people who see you pregnant and come up and start congratulating you and you know your baby's going to die? You can't explain things to everybody. How do you explain it to the other children in the family, to the parents at school? Um, people might need our help to understand what's going to happen. They might need to be prepared for the birth and know you're allowed to bring along baby clothes and you're allowed to bath and dress your baby even if the baby's dying. Um, and, and, it's a, and encourage them to bring a, a, a camera to take photos, to have memories of a very brief life. And we have palliative care for babies who die the same day they're born. And this, in one way, it's very sad, but in my experience, the, the funerals for these children are wonderful witnesses to the value of human life. 
And, and we know that these parents do better than the ones who have an abortion because if you have abortions for a previously wanted child, that is the group that does the worst of any group that has abortions. And it's a very difficult decision for them to make. But once again, a lot of those parents don't think that the choice to keep the baby exists. So if you do find there's an abnormality, a lot of the people in the radiology room at the time of the ultrasound might say, oh, you'll have to have an abortion. We were told we should have an abortion for our second daughter because it was thought she was going to have something wrong because of a virus I had. But you need time. You need to encourage people. Let's just wait and get some information. And it's been shown that the families that are introduced to a family caring for a child with that particular abnormality that their child has, has a greatly reduced um, likelihood of having an abortion. Um, they need time to understand what resources are available in the community to help them cope with a disabled child. They just need time not to rush it, to just realise that, that the option of keeping the baby exists. And this is something we need to do to help people, is to say, you can keep this child. But we have to realise that this is an heroic act ethically, because to take on the responsibility for lifetime caring of a disabled child is not something to be done trivial, trivially. Yes. And I think that if, as Christians, we're going to encourage these people to keep this, the child, we also have to be advocates for more disability support. I'm just so happy to see the disability insurance scheme getting off the ground. But, you know, a lot of churches in Sydney don't have disabled access. We, at the last church we went to, there was a fellow who came in a wheelchair. He said, you know, I've, I must have been to a dozen churches trying to find one where I could get in with my wheelchair. Um, we have to make our churches dis disability friendly. We have to have Sunday school classes where children who need extra Sunday school teachers, even a one-on-one -on -one can be supported so their parents can sit together and listen to a sermon. We need to think in laterally how can we help these parents um, have a lifetime of caring for a disabled child. So there's some very good resources around. Kirk Patson is writing some very good things on disability uh, and Christianity. Yeah. And, um, but once again, in, um, I, I do spend a lot of time in the book looking at the whole disability question. Do, Megan, do you think we should, there's a question about this, do you think we should even be involved in um, this whole prenatal uh, screening altogether? So someone has asked, what about technology that allows detection of predispositions, illnesses, even sex? Does it do more harm than good knowing? Should we even try to know? Well, I, what I really object to is the fact that so many tests are done without the parents knowing what's going on. And it's, very con it's one thing to say, well, do you want to have a test to find out if something's wrong with your baby? And, oh, by the way, there's something wrong. Um, I think people should be given that chance to stop and think, do I want these tests? Now, sometimes you need expert advice because some tests... Some things are worth knowing about because you might need special care during your pregnancy as we decided to continue our second pregnancy and I needed to have an enormous number of ultrasound scans to make sure that our baby was, was safe. So there are some issues where you might need to have a test just to see um, that 
the pregnancy is safe because the mother and the child might need special care. But I, I think that we need to think through, well, um, do, do I believe I should have an abortion if there is something wrong with my child? If you don't think you're going to have an abortion if there's something wrong with your child, well, there are a lot of tests. There's no point in having them because the only reason you have them is to have your abortion before the 20-week mark. Um, so you need to, to have a conversation with your doctor when you're having the test saying, well, what are these tests for so that I can decide which ones I want and which ones I don't. And that's why that chapter's in the book, so people have the information to take along and say, I'll have these ones and I won't have those. And should we be prepared for the quimsical look? And, and, and just expect to be treated like a real troublemaker if you're a Christian engaging in childbearing. I mean, particularly areas like IVF, they just think you're crazy. And you have to keep fighting for your unborn child again and again. You think you can have one conversation with your doctor and you're fine. No, you are going to have to say it again and again and again. Um, and that's just part of, I think, being um, advocates for human life, unborn human life in our society now. There, there's a, a friend of mine, a, um, a paediatrician who works with in paediatric ICU, and, and he thinks that, look, if you're really not going to have an, an abortion, uh, whatever's wrong with your child... Um, don't have too many tests because you can spend the whole pregnancy worrying about what's what it's going to be like instead of preparing, spending the whole pregnancy looking forward to meeting your child and learning how to love it. And um, I, I think that there's something to be said for not having the screening, uh, but my, my obstetrician friends are telling me don't say that uh, across the board because sometimes you do need to yeah. know a bit of extra information to look after yeah. the pregnancy. But I just think you need to have made up your mind about whether or not you're going to want to abort an abnormal yeah. child up front because it's very hard to decide once you know something's wrong. Very hard to have an informed choice. Yeah. Megan, can we change tack? Someone's asked this question regarding um, uh, the end-of-life end questions. Um, what about those with severe mental illnesses, um, do we have a right to make decisions for them at the end of their life or just to let them die? You know, to look at the big picture, this idea that there are some lives not worth living, which is the message I get from this question, that the life of a disabled child is not worth living, that, that um, some people are saying, well, we're doing them a favour by not letting them to come to birth. And, and I wrote a, an, a little article uh, in Southern Cross about this recently, this idea that as soon as we think of someone suffering, we say, well, let's eliminate the sufferer. You know, if we, we think there's going to be a genetically um, disabled child, well, let's just get rid of that life. If we have a mentally disabled adult, let's get rid of that life. If you've got cancer, well, with the, let's introduce euthanasia so they can get, we can get rid of them as well, particularly if they want to go. Um, and, and it's this idea that um, once you're suffering that there are some lives that just aren't worth living. But that's not, that's not the view of somebody who believes that there's another world after this. But if, if, you, if you believe that, it's because you have a materialist worldview where you think this is all there is and if you're suffering, well, why not just get out of it while, while you can? That why put up with suffering? 
And you can understand why they think that if this is all there is and you're suffering well and it's not much fun, well, you might as well opt out. But that, that goes back to the idea that we're just uh, a random accident of an evolutionary process. It, it's not the view of people who believe that every human being is made in the image of a loving God and that we have a world after this one. We live in a fallen world. We should expect suffering. We should expect brokenness. We are told all about this in the Bible. And we know that in the end, the only one who can wipe every tear from our eyes is, is, is God and the hand of God. So this is, this is a world where some of us are going to have to carry burdens that will only be taken from us in the world to come. Mm. We are in no position to say that any of those lives are not worthwhile. If you listen to people in the disability lobby, they keep saying, why doesn't someone ask us if our lives are worthwhile? We're having a great time here. People stop telling us we need euthanasia. A lot of them are very upset about this whole screening thing for yeah. the same reason. Yeah. So we don't have the right to choose whether someone else's life is all right. If God has made us all in the image of God and he chooses for some of us to carry very difficult burdens, our job is to help them. We are to carry each other's burdens and to do our best in this world and just look forward to the world to come. Hmm. Now, at this point, I know... Well, I might just note I'm against euthanasia in case you wondered. Yes, um, yeah. Now, I know um, in this forum, but you may have, you might want to ask questions uh, as we speak. And so, um, if you'd like to write, I'd, I'd forgotten about this because I know there were so many questions here. If you whack up your hand, if you want to actually ask Megan a question, you're brave enough to do that, um, then uh, Sarah will give you I've a microphone. I've answered some so of just, these. Just uh, put your hand up. Um, or put your hair behind your ear or whatever you'd like to I've do. I've answered yeah. that one. Um, so there's one over here. David. Hang on, mate. Wait for the microphone for the tape. Yep. Thank you. Um, apparently, about a third of uh, pregnancies don't get to implantation, and don't, or you know, uh, basically. Is that Dave? Yeah. Hi, Hi Megan. Uh, <laughs> Recognise your voice. Old friend. So. Oh, yeah. at least half, maybe even more. Yeah. Yep. So, so how do you make sense of that? Um. um yeah. Yes, it's. Uh, it's, it's thought that maybe 60, 70%, we're, we're not sure, somewhere between half and two-thirds of um, embryos, zygotes, that's the egg and the sperm joining together, uh, don't even get to the point of implantation about a week after conception. And most of those um, problematic um, early pregnancies are thought to have genetic problems because the genetic structure, the genetic framework starts kicking in uh, after about two days. So by then we have genetic problems being expressed and, and it's thought that most of those uh, problems with implantation are genetic problems. I see this as a problem of the fallen world uh, in that uh, there is a lot of brokenness in, in the way um, human biology is uh, now being expressed. and. Um, so we see that as part of a broken world rather than um, anything else. And in some ways, maybe it's a mercy of God that the most extreme genetic abnormalities don't allow um, development to the point of birth. Now, Megan, you mentioned in your book that in Germany they have very conservative laws protecting the unborn. Um, uh, what are they, um, some of them, and why do you think that is? 
Well, in Germany, they don't allow um, the development of embryos um, to be implanted and then freeze them. They, if, if you develop the embryo, you have to implant it. This is during IVF, for example? In IVF. Yeah. In IVF. If you, um, the basic process of IVF, which is in vitro, in vitro fertilization, which is in glass or sort of in a test tube baby, so it's, they're not in test tubes, they're actually in Petri dishes and you, put, uh, you um, collect some eggs from the wife and put some of the sperm in and just see how many embryos form. And then those embryos are transferred to the womb um, of the woman at the right time to hopefully implant and develop the pregnancy. Now, um, because there is no direct calculation between the number of embryos created and the number of live births. Um, the, the doctors in the clinics obviously want to do the best for their, their patients and help them um, to have a live birth. So, because infertility is a terrible, terrible problem to have to deal with. To, to be Christians, married in a Christian church with all the family programs and really wanting to have your own child and, and, and month after month finding out you're not having a child is very painful. And so obviously these people are very desperate to have a child and they're very emotionally vulnerable and they'll probably agree to anything the doctor will suggest. So the doctor often suggests, well, let's make as many embryos as possible because the more times we transfer an embryo, uh, the greater the chances of having a live birth. And... Um, we uh, don't want to collect the eggs from the woman more often than possible because it's, it's a potentially dangerous procedure. So let's just make as many embryos as we have and, and transfer some and we'll freeze the rest just in case we need them. And because there, there's no direct calculation between how many embryos formed and how many will develop properly, they, they just make as many as they can. It can be more than 20 for one couple. But I've had people come to me saying, well, I, I have a family of six children and I still have ten embryos in the freezer. What am I going to do? So th there's this problem, and I yeah. can't even remember what the original question was. So in Germany, they don't allow that to happen. Oh, okay, but they don't allow um, that in Germany. They say, well, you can only make up to three embryos because that's the maximum number you're allowed to have transferred. In Australia, it's only two maximum. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but in Australia, because you might have your family and you have leftover embryos and then what do we do with the leftover embryos? Germany's decided we don't want any leftover embryos. They are very, very um, strict about the fact that they don't want to have the build-up of human embryos. And um, Italy's also very strict. Yeah. And, and you can trace it back to the safeguards in the German constitution protecting human dignity and that applies to unborn humans as well as humans after they're born and you can trace it back to their awareness of the potential of humans to do evil with with um, with these kind of eugenic programs they can remember the atrocities of world war ii and it's very strongly um, expressed in their constitution that human life deserves to be treated with respect because human dignity um, requires it. And it's interesting that those countries that probably saw the worst of the World War II eugenics are the ones that are most careful to protect human dignity now. Yeah. Megan, there's a 
couple of extra questions surrounding um, this one about RU486 here. Yes, and there's a couple about um, uh, surrounding fertility. Uh, one is, what about surrogate mothers, married or unmarried, uh, carrying babies for others? Uh, what's a helpful Christian attitude to this? And what does the Bible say about a single woman adopting embryos? Um, that's a new you thing. You just want me to answer the easy ones. Yeah, yeah. I do, yeah. <laughs> Um, would it be okay for unmarried women to, a, to adopt an embryo um, or a child, uh, especially considering the alternative for the embryo is likely to be death? What should Christians think about this? It's a good question, yeah. It, they are very good questions. And I think um, they're, they're good in the sense that they help us to start saying, well, how are we even going to start working through some of these questions? Fair enough, we've worked out the biology of when human life starts though we haven't really gone into why we think we should protect it from the beginning. But mm -hmm. anyway, human beings, are, uh, if we don't get up to that, it's in the book. Yeah. Um, what does God tell us? He obviously doesn't talk about IVF. Uh, it's not a scientific textbook, and it was written a long time ago. So IVF doesn't really crop up in the Bible very often. But what does come up? And we can think, well, God tells us about marriage, about the raising of children, about the purposes of sex, about where reproduction comes in. And these are all things that are going to be important when we start to think through a technology like IVF. Now, in the book I have a whole chapter about are we playing God when we use technology? And that looks at the questions of should we ever use technology? And to cut a very long chapter short, if we're using technology to restore what is broken in the human process, I believe that that is uh, in line with biblical principles. You can see doctors being used in the Bible. Jesus himself healed people back to normal. So we're talking to come back to normal functioning. It's okay to use technology. It's part, our ability to develop technology is part of what it means to be human and made in the image of a creative God. But if we start to think about IVF where, on the one hand, we can restore the normal reproductive focus of a, a, a married couple, certainly I don't think there are any problems with that. But you will have to fight for the lives of your embryos. I'm telling you that up front. There is no way you're going to have an easy time. So be prepared for that. It's going to be tough. But we know that the Bible says that children are to be nurtured within families, nuclear families. Um, we know that the place of sex is within marriage between a man and a woman, that, um, that sexual intercourse isn't just for having procreation, so that there, it is possible to use contraceptives in an ethical way, though that's a topic we haven't really got onto, mm. um, in the timing of our children. So we know that our parents... Um, you can expect that if you're sexually active within a marriage that the chances are you will have children. And when you have those children, it goes beyond provision of the egg and the sperm. If you look at places like um, Abraham was told to teach his parents about, about God in Genesis 4. In Deuteronomy, we have Moses explaining the laws of God and he says, teach your children about God Talk about God and his laws when you're walking along the road, at, you know, at home, when you're at home. Um, teach your children about what it means to be stewards of this earth and what their responsibilities are. Teach them how to love God. 
we're told that we have to discipline our children, particularly fathers. Just providing sperm um, to, uh, to allow a pregnancy, it, your responsibility goes beyond provision of sperm. Uh, we have to nurture our children, provide uh, for them uh, as, as they grow up. We're, we're told uh, we have responsibilities with... Um, I actually wrote down some of these so I wouldn't forget them all. Um, so we have to give them a sense of belonging. Um, it's important. We see all those genealogies. It was very important for people in Israel to know the family they came from. And, and in the New Testament, our family is the church. But, but children need to know where they've come from. Um, we all do. And, and so when you start to think of IVF, and surrogacy separates the, the, the mother who nurtures the child from the one who brings up the child. I think there's a very strong bond between um, the surrogate mother and the child, between any woman and the, the child she carries. And I think that's a God-given bond for a good reason. And there's some research... We don't have a lot of research about a lot of these children because really the whole IVF thing is a social experiment that's fairly new and we really don't know what's going to happen to a lot of these children because the oldest IVF children are only in their, reaching their 20s, really. Uh, so we, we don't know a lot, but there's some new research suggesting that surrogate children are having some problems with bonding uh, in their families. Um, and that could be because they have so many parents. They've got their genetic parents and then their surrogate mother and then they might have their social parents and they might have five different parents. And that's confusing because we are made to know where we come from. And I think we see that particularly uh, in the Stones of Remembrance, things like that, and all, all the families of Israel. Would you say, though, that um, a couple uh, who aren't uh, able to have their own children, but um, uh, adopting an embryo um, and... Well, that's different because... That, that's different, yep. Because um, I think if you... If you donate sperm and walk away from those sperm, or donate eggs and walk away from them, you, are, you may be giving up some of your responsibilities as parents because what if you're giving those, those gametes to a child who's raised in a non-Christian family? They're not going to grow up with the knowledge of God. Um, and there have been problems in the imbalance in the, in the marriage if... If a man sees a woman, his wife is pregnant from another man's sperm, there have been feelings of sexual jealousy, even if no adultery actually occurred. And I don't know that you can say absolutely it's wrong, but I think we have to be careful in asking, is it wise to cause these tensions in marriage and this imbalance in marriage? But if you're talking about adopting an embryo, well, that's like adopting a child, but a bit earlier on in the process. Mm. And it's, it's a human life that's already in existence, and it is an act of generosity and hospitality to that mm. embryo to give it a chance at life, which it would not have had if someone hadn't had it transformed to a womb. So I think that adopting... An embryo is quite different from adopting yeah. surrogates. But I think when we talk about the whole IVF thing, we have to think, where does this fit into God's framework of family and yeah. the responsibility of parents? The Bible doesn't talk about rights of parents. It talks about responsibilities of parents. 
yeah. that's what we have to keep in mind. Now, d just two more questions on on this, and then I think we'll um, bring things to a close. Um, uh, surrounding this, so, a couple of people have asked: um, Can Christians freeze eggs and not use them? And how does uh, freezing eggs relate to trusting in God's providence? Freezing of eggs, um, as I've just explained how it comes about, um, this is a very difficult question because we don't fully understand what happens when eggs are frozen. We know that not eggs that are frozen are going to survive being thawed out. If they are thawed out and are still alive, we don't know that... We, well, we do know that not all of them will actually go on to develop once they're transferred to the womb, but we don't know why. We don't know whether it's... The question is probably about unfertilised eggs. If it's right? an embryo? Yeah. Or oh, is it eggs or embryos? Eggs, yeah. Okay. Can I just finish the sentence on the yeah, embryos? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so... It's in the book. If you really need to know about this, you need to read about it in the book because it, there's a lot of fine detail. But essentially, when we don't know exactly what happens, it is very hard to be black and white with mm. the ethics. In terms of freezing eggs, look, it would be great if we could harvest the eggs and freeze them and not make them into embryos. Well, it doesn't matter what happens to eggs or sperm because they're not a human life in an early stage of development. It doesn't happen... It doesn't matter ethically what happens to sperms or eggs individually. So if we could harvest the eggs, once from the woman, limiting the number of dangerous procedures she has to have and freeze them and just then thaw them out and fertilise them as we need them, we'd get past all these problems of frozen embryos. And, and the reason it's a problem is because it's a human life that was started and not allowed to develop. Um, but the technology... To freeze eggs, freezing sperm's easy. That's why we don't. You know, sperm are very easy to come by. <laughs> they they just keep being produced by the male over and over and over again. But the number sure. of eggs a woman's ever going to have is the number she has when she comes to maturity. She's never going to make another egg after that. Yeah. So you've just got this set amount you need to deal with. There hasn't been a lot of political will to develop the technology to freeze eggs because most people don't care what happens to embryos. Um, in countries like in Italy, there have been live births from frozen eggs, but in Italy, as I said, they're much more careful with unborn human life. So the technology is there and it is getting better all the time. But if you want to do it in Australia, you're going to have to pay a lot of money because you're one of those religious weirdos and they're just going to put a bit of an extra cost on it because they really don't appreciate why you want to do it. If you want to freeze your eggs because you're having chemotherapy that's going to make you infertile, you'll actually get it at a cheaper price because there's much more sympathy for that person than the one with religious opposition. But mm. some clinics in Australia do allow freezing of eggs, but as I said, the technology isn't as well developed as for the freezing of embryos because in Australia... There's a long answer, it's a short answer, but there's a lot of confusion about when human life begins in yeah. the book. I'm trying to keep them short, but... Yeah, I know. I mean, each question, it could be an individual talk, quite yeah, frankly. Yeah, that's right. Now, we might um, bring the questions there's to nothing close, you... unless someone... There's a, lot, a couple of questions about contraception I have Someone has a burning question they would like touched. to ask. 
Do you want um, me to have one sentence on contraception? Yeah. Yes. Go on. Contraception against conception. You'd think a contraception stops you from conceiving, right? Wrong. In the 50s, some obstetricians were developing some contraceptives they thought might cause early abortions. And they thought, gee, if people think they cause early abortions, we can't call them contraceptives. So they changed the definition of when conception occurred so they could call them contraceptives. So now, what you would biologically call contraception, conception, and what the manufacturers are calling conception are a week apart. So Christians need to know about which contraceptives work in that one week period between um, conception and implantation, which was the new definition, because if they work in that one week period, you are potentially causing an abortion, a very early abortion with your contraceptive. Um, so if you want to know about which ones fall in that, it's in the book. But that is why there's an issue for Christians. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was a quick, great quick answer. Yeah, it was quick. And, and these issues are, are huge. And um, it would be great if we could do two things. Uh, can I... I just want to say one more thing. Yeah. But when you're ready. Yeah, yeah. So can I say, we want to thank Megan uh, in a second. We also... Uh, uh, Megan's going to be down the front and... Uh, uh, her book will be for sale, $30, and Megan might even sign it for you. And so that would be a nice thing for you to do. Um, and so we'll thank you in a second, Megan, but yeah, I'll give you the last word. Sorry. There are some questions also about, well, what can we do, it, do in the community about these issues? And I would suggest that one thing we can do is think about how we can apply the principles in our own lives because I think that Christians living out Christian lives are the most powerful witness we have um, for a God who has such high respect for human beings. We also need to pray for those who are in, decision, in the place of making decisions that God will help them to make godly decisions and look around to see how we can support people in that situation. And then I think there's also a role for us to speak out in our community and be salt and light within um, this world. Because if we truly believe that the Bible is the handbook of the God who made us, well, that's, that's really good advice about what, what human beings need to flourish in this world. And I think we, we have a responsibility to let other people know about that. And even if they don't agree with us, we live in a democracy. Everybody's got a right to voice their own view, and that includes Christians. And I think that if we are the followers of a God who has a great concern for the vulnerable in our society, for orphans and widows, surely he is also a God who has great concern for the unborn, surely the most vulnerable of human beings in our community, for those at the end of life who who are scared that someone's going to think they're a burden. And so I would say that as we come up to an election, we need to let our politicians know these are things we care about. Write letters. Ask your, the people standing in your electorate, what is your view on these issues? Because usually they come to a conscience vote, and it depends on the views of the individual politician, not the party. It's worth checking the party. Some people are surprised 
at how pro-choice the Greens are, for example. Um, the Greens are really pushing euthanasia all around the country. So we need to find out where do you stand? If you had a conscience vote on euthanasia, which way would you vote? How do you feel about abortions? Do you think we should stop having a Medicare rebate for abortions that are done for sex selection because you want to have a girl and not a boy? Just because you want to have a girl and not a boy, not for any health reasons. These are some of the legislation um, that has been coming before our parliaments. Mm. And, and it's a conscience vote. So you do have a voice. You can use it for the gospel in this way, particularly with an election coming up. Just think about um, who you're going to vote for. But yeah. thank you so much uh, for yeah. being a very attentive audience. And I've been very long-winded, but you did give me a lot of topics. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yes, God bless you for your interest in all of this. Yeah, let's thank me again. Thank you. Uh, why don't I pray to finish our night together? Let's pray. Um, our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are uh, the giver and sustainer of life, that, Father, you have created us, that you've created us in your image, that, Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ, you'd offered us uh, the hope of um, redemption and eternal life. Father, we thank you that um, Jesus is uh, the second Adam, the beginning of the new humanity. And, Father, we look forward to the day when we'll meet him face to face in your glorious new creation where there'll be no more pain, or sickness, or death, uh, for this order of things that we live in now will have passed away. And Father, in the meantime, I pray you would give us all great wisdom to know how to best care uh, for those who are vulnerable at the beginning and the end of their life. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for Megan. Father, we thank you for um, the understanding that you've given to her. Uh, Father, we thank you for the book that she has written. Father, we thank you for her work in um, persuading governments to make laws that are just and that protect the unborn. Uh, Father, we thank you that she is uh, representative of us and, and part of our voice to the community and to our governments on these things. And so I pray, Father, that you would uh, be gracious towards her, that you would give her strength and, and wisdom uh, in that role. And Father, you would also help each of us in the com small conversations we have with our friends and, and the opportunities that we have to to advocate for the Bible's position on these things because we care about our community. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit and emboldened by your word that you would uh, help us to uh, be salt and light. And, uh, Father, we thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>